you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, to chapter 14, which is where we are this morning. This chapter continues the story of David's troubles as a result of the Lord's judgment for his sin. And the bad news is that chapter 14 is worse than chapter 13. But I guess the good news is that it's not as bad yet as chapters 15 and following. We're going to see how David's life continues to spiral downward, even as the Lord had described back in chapter 12. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 14, beginning at verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king. And speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. The one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has arisen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. 
For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For the lord my king... For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my Lord the King speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my Lord the King, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word, that you would teach us more of who you are, more of what you have done for us, and more of what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, just as in chapter 13, 
In chapter 14, David is almost a bystander to the narrative. Events are happening to him. Where before in his life, he was the one driving the narrative. There are three characters in this chapter who take initiative and influence David. Joab, the woman from Tekoa, and Absalom. David is only found reacting to them and their actions. In this chapter, the Lord shows the difference between what is false and what is true. These lessons help us to see David's downward spiral, but they also help us in our own lives. And so let's begin then first by looking at the false wisdom that we are shown. It's a false wisdom, so-called. Now, three years have gone by. We have to remember this. It's only two verses since Absalom fled to Geshur from the end of chapter 13 to chapter 14, verse 1. But three years have passed, we are told. And David remains of two minds about what has happened. First, he knows that Ammon's murder was wrong. But second, he loves Absalom and he is reluctant to punish him. Now, this reflects the most lasting consequence of David's sin. Once in the past, he was able to think with moral clarity. Now, he is not. Now, we can imagine David's thoughts as he sits on the throne. Why has all this happened? What will I do? Who will succeed me now that Absalom is gone and Amnon is dead? Joab sees this and he acts. Joab is a man of action. He is fiercely pro-David and he is also concerned about the kingdom wasting away. He wants the kingdom to get back on track. He sees that David wants to bring Absalom back and to be reunited to him. But David can't bring himself to do it. We see here in verse 1, the king's heart went out to Absalom, but that doesn't change a three-year exile. So Joab devises a plan, and it's actually built on the success of of Nathan's plan to challenge David that we saw a few chapters ago. Instead of a prophet, Joab finds a wise woman from the town of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. It's most famous for the prophet Amos. Amos was born and lived in Tekoa. And that is where this woman is from. She is wise in the same way that Jonadab, we saw, was crafty. It's actually the same word. And she will be the actor. But the plan, the words, the script, if you will, is Joab's. But this woman does indeed have skill. She presents her fictional case with great emotion and believability. She tells the story she has two sons. One killed the other. And now her family wants to punish the other son to the full extent of the law to give him the death penalty. But the problem is that this would leave her family with no heir at all. And that means, according to the law of God, that 
the ancestral land of her family would pass out of her family and would go to the extended clan, the extended members of the family, the second, third cousins a few times removed. And this, she intimates, is actually the plan that her extended clan is putting into play. They don't care so much about justice as getting a hold of this property, getting rid of the heir. Now David is hooked, and she is about to reel him in. David promises to side with her in verse 8. He promises to be her defender in verse 10. But that's not enough for her. She wants an oath of immunity. Swear by the Lord, she says. She wants David to be fully committed. And that's exactly what David does in verse 11. David obliges, and it's actually similar to the commitment that he made to punish the lamb stealer earlier. He is now caught in her trap. Then the woman begins to press her advantage in verse 12. She then begins to compare her situation to David's with the attempt of making David see that he should give up his idea of justice against Absalom. After all, if David says her banished son should be returned and restored, why not his own? That's her question in verse 13. And then she does something interesting you'll see in verse 15. After pressing David, she goes back to her story. That makes verses 12 through 14 kind of an interlude in her script she goes back to her own story, likely because she doesn't want David to see that her challenge to him is the main reason she's there. Now, <clears throat> this may seem odd, but I think you've probably experienced this. Have you ever gotten a phone call from someone in which they say, well, how are you doing? And, and how's your spouse? And how are the kids? And how's school? And is work going okay? And how are things around the house? And tell me more what you're doing. And tell me more about your life. And then after pleasant conversation for a while, they say, oh, by the way, I just thought of a favor I had to ask you. Would you be willing to help me out here? And then they return afterwards to chit-chat because they don't want you to know that the only reason they called you was to get the favor. That's what the woman is doing here. She's trying to cover it up, cover her tracks. But David is able to see through this. Now, I don't agree with the woman that David is as wise as an angel of God to know everything upon the earth. But he is a pretty wise king. He's been around for a while. And we might even say he knows Joab pretty well. And so the first thing that he thinks is, this is Joab, isn't it? He senses Joab at the bottom of it, and he asks the woman, isn't this the case? And she gives this interesting answer in verse 19. As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything my lord the king has said. And that, as one commentator says, is translated, yes, Joab is at the bottom of this. It's a long-winded way. You can see, she's pulling out all the stops. She's looking for an Academy Award here. Well, she can't deny that Joab is behind it, but she begins then in verse 20 to flatter David. She tries to, to influence him 
distract him now with flattery. Now all of this is a scheme and it is false wisdom. There is no wisdom in what she is saying. She is deliberately pulling David away from God's word. She says, don't think about God's word. Don't think about the law. She's appealing to his emotions. If Nathan roused David's conscience against his feelings, the woman is trying to rouse his feelings against his conscience, doing the exact opposite. And she's doing this deliberately. She mixes up the stories. In her story, the one son is only guilty of manslaughter. It's an accidental death. It's not a premeditated murder. And God's law applies here. The mercy that would come, that David would apply, is provided for in God's law. That if someone, by accident, kills someone else, manslaughter, not murder, that he can go to a city of refuge and be spared from the avenger of blood because he did not intend to kill. But if someone commits a premeditated murder, there's no refuge for him. These are completely different cases. One is an accident, one is intentional. And so, rather than invoking God's provision, she wants David to ignore it. Now, there is a way that seems good to man. But the end of that way, the Proverbs tell us, is death. Beware of any false wisdom that would tell you the right thing to do is to follow your feelings instead of the Word of God. Anything that seeks to draw you away from the Word of God is a false wisdom that is dangerous. The worst advice that you could ever hear, whether it comes from a philosopher or a Disney movie, is follow your heart. Do not follow God's Word. So what then is the right solution? If we are to reject false wisdom, we must instead seek out true wisdom. And true wisdom is found in the Word of God. God has given us His Word so that we would know His will, and His will is what is good, just, and right. Nothing good can come from abandoning God's Word. So David should have acted with wisdom. He should not have ignored this problem with Absalom, hoping it would go away and he wouldn't have to face it. Now, you know that ignoring issues and problems is not the solution. Imagine if in February, during our great freeze here, in your home, one of the pipes burst. And you started to see a spot on the wall. And then water started to trickle out onto the floor. What would be the result of you saying, ooh, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to go into another room where I don't need to see that. That should make everything okay, right? What could happen if I just leave that pipe gushing water? If I'm in the other room, I won't even hear it, right? You know what the result of that is. The problem's just going to get worse. And that's not just true with water. That's true with life with moral decisions. David should have applied God's law in this situation in a way that was fair and true. And the woman suggests that David would be less merciful than God 
if he didn't bring Absalom home. But the cases are completely different. You see, God is merciful, but for God to ignore justice is not wisdom, it is emotionalism. It is often hard for us to follow God's word and wisdom. But we do ourselves no favor when we try to do the easy thing. God himself did not shrink back from the cost of his wisdom in dealing with our sin. He didn't ignore our sin. He didn't wave away our sin. He dealt with our sin. In a way in which his justice was upheld. Divine wisdom sent Jesus to the cross. So God would be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Jesus paid the penalty of sin in full. That means that God can forgive your sin. There is nothing left to do. No tricks, no surprises, just trust Him. Well, there is a second thing to see before we look at the outcome of Joab's plan to restore Absalom. And what we see here is a false valuation that is put on in the kingdom of Israel, specifically with respect to Absalom. It's found in verses 25 through 27. And these verses seem almost to be a break in the narrative here. We might wonder what these three verses are doing here. Why is now the place to give us a description of Absalom and his hair? Now, I'm reminded of the head and shoulders commercials where they have men with this long flowing hair that flows down past their shoulders. And they shake their heads slow motion. And you get to see this lustrous hair. And those of us that are a bit hair challenged become jealous. But what is going on here? You could easily go right from the end of verse 24 to the beginning of verse 28. Do you see that? You wouldn't miss these verses at all. The narrator here is displaying for us something about the character of Absalom and the standard evaluation of those around him. Think about what we know about Absalom so far. Is there anything to say he is a good man? Yes, I guess... He did have concern for his sister, <coughs> but that had limits. Remember his don't let this bother you speech earlier? That's not exactly great concern for your sister who's just been attacked. Don't let it bother you too much. Come and live with me. And he nursed hatred for Amnon for two years. He was cold and calculating. And then he murdered him in cold blood and fled rather than face justice. So what is so impressive about him now? Well, he's the most handsome man in Israel. There is no blemish in him, from head to toe. He's perfect to look at. He is a male model. He's got perfect, long, flowing hair. And after all, now that's what you need in a king, great hair. And he's now starting to have a family. Three sons and a daughter. Later on we'll find out in this book that he was childless for a time, but now that's fixed. He's also a family man. Now, 
Does this description of Absalom remind you of anyone? It should. It's eerily similar to the way that Saul was described when we first met him. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, we read, Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And the people loved to have Saul as their king. He looked the part. And even when Saul's character proved to be different from his looks, then you remember Samuel went looking for another king to anoint. And he came to Jesse's house with Jesse and all of his sons. And just as he walks up, he sees Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and he says to himself, Now surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why? Well, because he's tall and handsome, just like Saul. David isn't even there. He's off in the fields because he's the runt of the litter. He's young and small. How could you be considered a king unless you're beautiful and tall? But isn't this what we see all the time? Style over substance. Looks over content. Beauty before character. We see it in politicians who craft their image and their looks. We see it in our society's rush to have beautiful movie stars and athletes advise us on complex issues. You will face this all the time. The temptation is to look at what we can see instead of at the heart. And that is the solution. God sets it forth in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. God delights in using and exalting those who are humble in appearance. Those who do not catch our eye. And that should remind us not to try to build up our appearance at the expense of our character. It is the heart that matters. After all, Jesus was nothing to look at. Isaiah 53 reminds us that he had no form or majesty nor beauty that we should desire him. And so if we are to have a true valuation, we are to set value on what God values. Absalom was the big man on campus. He was winning the hearts of the people. And we'll see the results of that in the next few chapters. And we're told why. He was handsome. He had great hair. He had a family. But what are we not told about him? We don't hear anything about wisdom or faith or godliness. And this is a special danger for the church. For how are we to value leadership and people in the church? Is it by how great of a job they have? Or their charismatic way of speaking? Or their knowledge of sports? Or the hobbies that we like? No. This is why Paul is so careful to stress the character of leaders. Not their skill, 
or their charisma. But this principle goes beyond church leaders. We must evaluate everything in our lives based on the word, not appearances. What college will you pick? Is it the one with the beautiful campus and the great football team? Or is it the one that is a place where you can grow spiritually? That has a solid church near to it, where you can mature and grow? Which friends will you have? Those who are cool, but encourage rebellion against your parents? Or those who hold you accountable and encourage you? Well, that brings us to the final thing, the result of it all. And here we see a false reconciliation. The woman has told her tale. She's woven it perfectly. Joab has masterfully plotted. Absalom is strutting around, impressing people. And David restores Absalom and reconciles him with him. Now, Absalom will not only come back to Jerusalem, we see in verse 23, but he will eventually be brought back into David's presence and into the court itself in verse 33. Now, this is not a quick process. Remember that Absalom was exiled for three years, and then even after David brings him back, he's in another kind of exile for two more years. Five years have gone by. Now, I want you to notice what we do not see in these five years. Not once are we told about Absalom's sorrow. Not once does he ask for forgiveness. Not once does he admit that he is wrong. He has broken God's law and justice would demand an accounting. But Absalom will not admit that he has done something wrong. In fact, all of his actions speak of a self-satisfaction of himself and his actions. He goes around trying to look good, trying to impress others. He's not content with what he has, and so therefore he begins to harass Joab in verse 29. He asks him once, he asks him twice, and then he literally lights a fire under Joab to get his attention. Why does he do this? Because he's not really interested in reconciliation. He wants power. He's making a gamble. He says, well, if my father the king thinks I should be punished, he could put me to death. But he knows full well David's not going to do that. Five years have gone by and he could have done that and hasn't. David has brought him back. It's a very calculated risk. And so if we read between the lines, or if you skip ahead a chapter, you'll see that Absalom doesn't love his father. He hates him. David has restored Absalom not only against justice, but without any repentance. On the one hand, this can make us angry because we do not want to see the wicked prosper. But also, we ourselves can be tempted to shortcut the process of repentance and reconciliation to avoid awkwardness or grief. This is especially important for parents to recognize. So what does true reconciliation look like? If this is false reconciliation, what does true reconciliation look like? In his word, 
God does not leave us without hope of reconciliation. In fact, that is the main theme of the Bible, how to be reconciled with God and how to have our sins forgiven. But true reconciliation does not look like what we see here. The woman wanted David to submit justice to some vague notion of love. But when God forgives, it is never at the expense of justice. It is never apart from repentance. The Lord reconciles us to Himself, not by ignoring our sins, but by paying the price of our sins in the person and work of Jesus Christ. By His blood shed on the cross, Jesus perfectly bore the penalty your sins deserve under God's law. He made this clear to you through His resurrection. Death and the grave could not hold Him. The debt was paid in full. And now, as your mediator, Jesus reconciles you to God. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you sought true reconciliation with God? Do you know that it can be yours no matter what you have done, no matter what you have said, no matter what you have thought? This is the hope of the gospel. Well, the return of Absalom was not like the return of the prodigal in Luke 15. Absalom was not repentant. He pretended self-pity, pretended to love David, pretended to submit to judgment. But in reality, he believed he was above all of that. He thought he was too important for justice, too important to need forgiveness. Let me tell you, better to be like the poor prodigal with the stink of the pigsty on you than the arrogant beauty of Absalom. Don't wait. Be reconciled to God through the life and death of Jesus. Let's pray.